give and should give that really, on one hand, they don't cost anything at all, and then on the other hand, they're priceless. On one hand, you may not be artistic or able to work with tools. You couldn't put anything together. And yet these things that you give are so customized and so unique that only you can give them. And we have a hint as to what we're talking about this morning with these two moments from Jesus's life. The first one that Nolan read to us was at Jesus's baptism, the inauguration of his ministry as he was really kind of announced to everyone watching him there at his baptism. And of all the things that God could have said at that moment, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then again at the mountain of transfiguration, of all the things that God could have said, he repeats himself. Because there are some things that are so precious that they can only come from those who love you and know you most. The words that we say are incredibly valuable. And your words are more valuable to some than to others. And to the people that value the things you say, you can't hold anything back. You've got to say it. Um, Like 27 years ago or so, Bill Gates, one of the richest men who have ever lived on the planet, dropped $30 million on a book. A book. Can you imagine paying $30 million on a book? You might say, I can't imagine spending 30 minutes with a book, let alone $30 million on a book. But this book was so incredibly valuable to him because it was a journal from Leonardo da Vinci. 72 pages of thoughts, of sketches, of ideas that Leonardo da Vinci was working out in his mind over the course of about four years from 1506 to 1510. And they had this journal and put it up for sale. And I suppose genius recognizes genius um, because... To Bill Gates, the words of Leonardo da Vinci were worth $30 million. Let me just say it again. Your words are invaluable to somebody. No money may ever exchange hands, and I mean, it, it shouldn't have to, but the things you say are incredibly valuable to someone. So here's the big idea this morning. This Christmas, first, first line on your outline, this Christmas, give the gift of words of life. Give the gift of words of life. This is what Ephesians says in chapter four. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And so we'll unpack that a little bit later, but essentially what's being said right there is that every word that comes out of your mouth should have a mission. And it should never be to tear anybody down but it should be to build them up. And at this moment, the words that have a mission, we're not talking about prayer. We're not talking about speaking anything over your life. We're talking about very practically the things that you say to other people. Those words should have a mission. And so what I wanna do is I wanna give you four ways to make your words more life-giving. Simple enough? Four ways to make your words more life-giving. And so for you, you may be like, listen, I compliment, I encourage, which is all good, but just like at Christmas time, the gift is in the more, right? Whatever your Christmas dinner tradition, it's a little extra 
It's a little more than most other days. And what I'm encouraging you to do is if you don't do anything else during this Christmas season besides worship Jesus and eat, give the gift of the word of life. So this is what we're going to unpack, okay? Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11 says this, like apples of gold in settings of silver, so is a word skillfully spoken. Like apples of gold in settings of silver, so is a word skillfully spoken. To which you may be thinking, that doesn't make any sense. Probably doesn't make any sense because apples of gold in settings of silver probably to you sound like your grandmother's decoration that may be passed down to you, but you would never pull it out and show it in your own house. What is it saying? It's saying that um, well-spoken words, specifically the context here, kind of teaching Proverbs, well-spoken words are like something that is so beautifully crafted that it deserves a place of honor. Now, I want you to think for a moment about things that have been said to you that are absolutely unforgettable to you. It could be encouragement whenever you really needed it. It could be confrontation that you did not want, but in retrospect, you're glad that somebody had the courage to tell you the truth about yourself. It could be the first time that you heard, I love you, from the person that you love. Whether or not you could ever go back and like break that down and determine is, is that a grammatical masterpiece to you because of the value of who it came from in their relationship to you, to you, those words, the Bible would say, were like gold apples in settings of silver. You may still be like, I don't know about that. Just some, like, like a diamond on a black cloth like a new crispy pair of Air Jordan 1s opened underneath a tree at Christmas. The value of their words to you wasn't about how eloquent they were. It was about who they were to you. And in the same way, the value of your words to someone else, you may be like, I just, I get so tongue-tied, doesn't even matter. Just stumble, just say things. Because the fact that you're saying them it matters. So I want to give you four ways, again, that, that we're going to do this this morning. Number one is this, uh, with your words, this Christmas, but all the time really, voice affection, not just correction. Voice affection, not just correction. You ever know anybody that's really good at correction? You just wonder if they like you? You know, for some of you, you're dreading certain holiday gatherings because somebody that you're around is always correcting your kids, always correcting your grammar, always tearing down the cowboys whenever we all know that this is their year. This is their year. But somebody at the gathering has always got to tear them down. No, this is how they always look. No, this is their year. And you might be dreading getting in that situation because of somebody's just overbearing, constantly critical words. And some people you love may dread being around you right now for the same reason. Correction has its place. But its place isn't even most of the time. It's not even half of the time. Don't use your words just for correction. You've got to use them for affection. And so whenever we think of affection, like a lot, most of the time we think physical, like a kiss or a hug or you're a child, like a tussle of the hair. Okay, words of affection are the verbal version of a hug. 
That's what that is. And as we talk about this, some of us may be like, well, I'm just on a little unfamiliar territory right here. And can I tell you, um, we make people pay a price that we don't want them to pay whenever we hold back on words of affection. You know, life groups are really important at our church, right? Just getting together with small groups of brothers and sisters in Christ on a regular basis, talking about his word, sharing life. So I'm sitting in my living room one night with a group of young adult men, and somehow we get on the subject of the words, I love you, being used between fathers and sons. And to a man, these are young adults, but these are, young adults are men, young adult women are women, to a man in this room, all of them sharp, all of them capable, generally healthy people with a good trajectory for their life. Interestingly, each of them shared the experience that their dads would say, I love you, as long as they said it first. And I applaud them for being willing to say it first. And if you have to say it first, say it. Take initiative. Like, don't on principle say, well, I'm not going to say anything unless they say No, okay, say it. But for each of these young men that I was with that night, it would have meant a lot to them to hear their dad initiate that. Now, you would think that these guys wouldn't think of that after they were like eight years old. Can I tell you something? 80-year-olds think that way. I would have loved to hear my dad say the words, I love you. And it mattered to them so much. So whenever it comes to words of affection, like don't hold it back, get it out. To which you might say, well, you just got to understand people of a certain generation just, okay, listen, do you want to be known as a great example of your generation who always had like British royal family level reasons for not expressing emotion, just keeping it steady? We bow, we curtsy, we don't so much say things. I don't even know what that's all about. (laughs) Do you want to be remembered as somebody that always held their tongue? or someone who wouldn't stop talking about how much you love those that you do love. You do love people, right? Of course you love people. Say it. Say it. It feels awkward. Say it. They need to hear it. Again, back at the baptism, what could Jesus' father have said? Jesus, it says Jesus looked up, the heavens opened for him, he saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and he heard these words, this is my beloved son. Now, it sounds very biblical. What he's saying is, this is my boy. I love him with whom I am well pleased. He makes me proud. This is my boy. He makes me proud. I mean, wasn't that being said, what God was saying over Jesus being said for the benefit of everyone else? Well, sure, but if it was only for their benefit, God probably would have kept it very surface. Behold, you are witnessing the incarnation. He will live a sinless life. He's your savior. The father's more emotional than that. This is my beloved son. I love him so much. I'm so proud of him. You know who needs to hear that? Anybody you love. Okay, how about now? Yeah, we're good. 
Okay, the very next verse in chapter four, just I'm well pleased in him. The next verse is Jesus being led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, until the cross and crucifixion, this was probably the greatest test that Jesus faced. And I've got to think that as he's going through this, the words of his father are echoing in his mind. You realize it's not temptation unless it's a real test, right? You know that? Just like you're not tempted by a kale salad. So don't don't tempt me with that kale. Don't you wish all temptations were as, you know, big of a test as not eating a kale salad. So Jesus' temptation, his testing was a real testing. And I've just got to think in his mind, he heard the words of his father, that he thought, I, I can do this. I'm my father's son. I'm my father's son. Is there some affection that might be overdue to those you love? Will the most glowing words that are ever said about those you love happen at their funeral during a eulogy? They won't even get to hear those. So we might as well not save the good stuff for later, right? We might as well say it now. So words of affection, not just correction. And number two, speak words of encouragement, not just expectation. In all of our lives, we have different types of relationship. And so in some relationships, it's built on expectation, us delivering on something. It could be doing a job. It could be making a grade. It could be paying your membership dues. But whenever the expectation is not met, the relationship is over. But this is not the case with family and those we love. We're going to let each other down all the time. It's going to happen periodically. And you know what one of the most important things is for getting a relationship back on track or moving somebody forward? It's encouragement. Just these types of words. Um, You can do this. I know you can. I believe in you. God's put more in you than you know. I know you can do it. Have you ever received a word of encouragement that you needed at a certain time? And you're just like, yeah, I just needed to hear somebody say that they believe in me. Not just that there are certain expectations on my life, but that they believe that I can rise to the occasion, that they believe I can be this type of person, that they believe in me. That's what encouragement is. And so in our words to other people, we can't just voice expectation. This is what you should do. You know better than this. We've got to also voice encouragement because people need encouragement. Or reading some sort of quote from Mark Twain years ago, I can live two months off of a good compliment. Most people get so much more correction, so much more expectation than they get encouragement. If you want to restore a relationship, if you want to be a go-to friend, if you want to be a good son, a good father, if you want to establish a relationship with a sister that you haven't talked with in years, encouragement could be a great, great tool toward that. And so this is why Paul said in Ephesians, he said, no foul language should come out of your mouth, but only what's good for what? Building up someone in need. Meaning if you're in need and you need to be built up by someone's words, those are words of what? Those are words of encouragement. Those are the types of words that build us up so that it gives grace to those who hear. Did you know 
that your words can be the conduit for getting the grace of God into somebody's life. If you, if I, will take the time to say words of encouragement, to remember that every word from our mouth has a mission, and that according to God, according to the Apostle Paul, writing on behalf of God right here, that mission is always to build up, never to tear down. It's always to give grace, never to pick apart. So, affection, not just correction. Encouragement, not just expectation. And then number three, with your words, celebrate someone's character, not just their accomplishments. Celebrate someone's character, not just their accomplishments. Did you know that whenever we only celebrate someone whenever they do something that's visibly good, unknowingly, we can kind of put a feeling into them, which is, I've got to accomplish something really good if I'm going to get affection or encouragement from those that I love. I read a great story this week from a guy named Joe Pellegrino. Joe has a son named Joey. Now, Joey's a grown man now, but whenever Joey was a little boy and Joe was teaching him to play baseball, you're sitting out in the yard, he's tossing the ball to his son, and he said, now, Joey, if you can hit the ball over my head, hit a home run here in the backyard, right? If you can hit the ball over my head, I'm going to buy you that Lego pirate ship that you want. Over time, I don't know what, apparently they didn't know what happened either with the whole Lego pirate ship. And so Joey said, Dad, you never bought me, I don't know if you know this, you never bought me that Lego pirate ship. And Joe said, well, you never hit a home run. And Joey said, yes, I did. No, you didn't. Dad, yes, I did. No, you didn't. You didn't hit the ball over my head. Dad, yes, I did. And it became this kind of ongoing source of kind of joking argument rivalry over the years. And so one day, Joe Pellegrino was in Walmart walking from one side to the other 24 years later, and he cuts through the toy aisle, and he sees the latest, greatest version of the Lego pirate ship, because Lego's always going to Lego, right? There's always going to be more Legos. And he saw that, and his mind goes back to this ongoing conversation with him and his son, And this is what Joe said to himself. He said, I said to myself, who cares which one of us remembers that day correctly? Joey has grown into a young man with character and integrity. Whenever you see somebody developing the hard stuff in their life, point it out. You are becoming the type of young woman who is going to be able to do great things in life. You were becoming the type of man. I hope you know how proud you're making God because you're growing in the fruit of the spirit. You're more kind. You're more gentle than you were last year. Do you know that? So do you ever praise somebody's character and not just their accomplishments? We've got to do that. And so Joe bought the pirate ship and gave it to his son with a card on it. And this is what he had written. Dear Joey, forgive me for being so late with this gift. I've witnessed a lot of home runs in your life. I'm really proud of you. Love, Dad. Words of life. You're like, I'm not that poetic. No one cares. Just say it. Just say it. It means the world to somebody. It'll mean the world to somebody. So celebrate character, not just accomplishment. And then lastly, with your words, 
delight in somebody's identity, not just their achievements. So we started at that moment in Jesus's life at his baptism. And then the second passage from Matthew chapter 17 is at his transfiguration. Now the transfiguration, like if I could have been alive for any moment in Jesus's life other than the resurrection, it's probably this one. So Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And what's going to happen is they're about to get this visible experience of just how much God Jesus is, of how divine he is. And so Jesus is standing there, and in this vision, they see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. These are two Old Testament figures who have been dead kind of a long time, and yet when it comes to God, everyone is living because God is the God of the living and not the dead. So Jesus is talking with them about everything that the Gospel of Luke says that he's about to accomplish, everything he's about to achieve in Jerusalem. So the baptism is the outset of his ministry. Here we are toward the end. It's all downhill to the crucifixion from here. And what it says is that Jesus was transfigured before them. Somehow he undergoes some sort of transformation. His face shines like lightning. His clothes turn as white as white can be. And they get a glimpse of who this guy really, really is. And so Peter's like, this is good. We should stay here. I'll put up like three tents, man. And of course, he didn't get to stay in that moment. But a cloud surrounds them, and they hear a voice from heaven. And of all the things that that voice, Jesus' father, could say, I mean, what could he say at this point? You're going to be able to do it. Be bold going to the cross. I mean, he could say a million different things, right? And yet he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says it again. It's like two or three years later. Don't you think Jesus has heard enough of that? Don't you think he's got that one? It's just what fathers do. This is what we do with those that we love. We voice that we love them. Okay? So Uncle Bob, who drinks too much, he's still your Uncle Bob. You got to love Uncle Bob. The, The daughter who's so caught up in addiction that you don't feel like you ever get to see the little girl that you raised, she's still breathing. She's still your little girl. She's your little girl. You can think of a million different scenarios. I mean... Christmas time, you love the Hallmark movies, the the perfect moments, the beautiful pictures that face it. They just tend to elude in a lot of different ways because we live in a sinful world, because we're sinful people, because marriages end, because people die, because kids are hard-headed, because parents are goobers. It can all be difficult. I'm not talking about my kids, your kids. It can be difficult. And in all of that, we love. Because these are the ones that God has trusted us to love. And so whenever you look at these moments of God voicing this, I want to go ahead and invite the band. We're going to begin to wrap up. It would actually 
be ending prematurely to just say that's how God loves Jesus and that's how we should love those in our lives, do you realize that that is also how God loves you? That he loves you so much that scripture actually says, while we were still enemies of God, no interest in him whatsoever, he was so interested in us, in you, that he sent his son, Jesus, the one he loves so much, to live the life that I should have lived, that you should have lived, to die the death that I should have died, that you would deserve. And he did that, why? So that he could redeem us from all of our failure, from all of our sin, from all of our hatefulness, for all of our hidden dark things that we would never want anyone to see. In all of that, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die to take care of that. So that, well, here's what scripture says. John, 1 John chapter three, see what great love the father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. What greater love could possibly be expressed by God, even greater than the words, I love you, than sending his son. And so Paul says, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one, Jesus, who did not know any sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus takes the penalty for everything that we have done if we are willing to accept it. If we are willing to say, God, apply that to me. I need that forgiveness. I need that love. And in becoming the righteousness of God, essentially what happens, because we're adopted into God's family, we are given Jesus's track record. So that God doesn't just look at Jesus, and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God looks at Drew and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God looks at Maria and says, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. At Madeline, at Darlene, he can look at all of us through the lens of Jesus with the, as if we have the track record for Jesus's perfect, loving, and devoted life. That's how much... God loves you. That's how much God wants you. And so as we talk about identity, it's not just something we celebrate in those who are related to us. It's something on offer from the God who loves us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Well, Lord, we love you so very much. God, we're so grateful that through your word, you don't